0: Declining value of information and taking risks to determine what is the truth. Ask me anything about episode EF4. I'm Scott Ely. Welcome to episode EF20 of the Evolve Faster Podcast. Quick spoiler alert, this is a Ask Me Anything looking back at episode EF4 of the Evolve Faster Podcast, which was season one, episode two, titled The Decapitation of Reason: A Skeptic's Guide. So just a quick one paragraph from the website description. In this episode, we'll discover what do the theories of rationalism, empiricism, and skepticism have to say about the way we gain new knowledge. Why do rationalism and empiricism seem to to collide on how humans function? Would it work to instead just be a skeptic every time you face a new obstacle? Finally, is there a way to optimize your mindset? Take the best out of all three. So I'm going to try to cover as many of the following questions as I can. So let's dig in. Could there possibly be someone crazy enough to cut off his head just to prove a point? Could something like this happen? You mean two brothers wanting to cut and switch their heads because of a philosophical bet? I don't see why not. Seems totally, totally plausible. The entire episode was, to a certain extent, inspired by Dr. Sergio Canavero's attempt to perform a head transplant that caught the world's attention back in 2017. Unless you've been living under a rock or your Wi-Fi has been out, you've probably heard of it. But with the episode, I gave it a fictional treatment, meaning i made it a little more over-the-top and melodramatic. Hopefully I succeeded. Um, although it's not easy to make someone getting the world's first highly unlikely-to-succeed head transplant, somehow seem more dramatic, although I might have succeeded in highlighting what I think could actually make it even more controversial if a surgery like this is ever to happen. The question, if it's possible, I don't see why not. I mean, idiots were swallowing caustic and poisonous Tide Pods just because some other idiot they don't even know on YouTube dared them to do it, and there was zero upside. So at least if someone did this, experiment, they'd go down in history as at least being a very brave person, if not a fool. So yes, I think for sure someone might do it. And especially if the odds of survival increase a little over time. And if there was any chance of proving what this episode speculates is possible, then I think it's even more likely. In the case of the, the guy that almost did the surgery, He was a paraplegic and had a degenerative nerve disease. So he had a real potential upside if this would would work as crazy as as the operation sounds, but he did end up backing out. So at first, this whole brain transplantation thing may appear quite futuristic. If anything, philosophers often make us imagine very weird things. So, however, when it comes to brain transplantation, or more precisely head, entire head transplantation, we're talking about something that's very real. Keep in mind that the first head transplant was made a century ago in 1908 by Dr. Charles Guthrie. So imagine that over a, just over 100 years ago. Yeah, it was a dog, and sadly the dog didn't manage to see the next day, but 100 years. Canavero makes a hard sell that it's possible now. But there's a lot of doubt from the scientific community that we're there yet from a technological perspective, and I think a lot many feel that he's just trying to go down the record books as the as the one that tried or the one that did it. but i I wasn't concerned about the technology as much. I wanted to dig into the implications of if and when this happens. So, I'm obviously not a doctor. I'm not even qualified to cut the head off of a fish in order to fillet it. but Looking at it from a logical perspective, I don't think it's a matter of if, but it's a matter of when, when this is gonna happen. So I think when we do, there will be many failures and unforeseen implications, and it doesn't matter if it will be Dr. Canavero or someone else. I also think there are a lot of ethical reasons surrounding why the transplantation still hasn't happened, coupled with finding someone who's willing, who's the perfect fit. So, that's why it was so intriguing to think about and and write some speculative fiction about. It makes me wonder what are the other milestones humanity still didn't reach because of ethical reasons. And there are certainly some that never should have seen the light of day. And for those Vonnegut fans out there, you're probably thinking about Ice Nine right now. Will deep VR rewrite the rules of empiricism? Is reality subjective? I'm not sure if it will rewrite the rules of empiricism, but it will definitely make the job of philosophers who spend restless nights pondering and pontificating about it much harder. It will be as if you were 90% done with the puzzle just in time for someone to add about a thousand more pieces. And although it's hard for me to imagine this happening in the near future, it's definitely possible if you look just a little further down the road. It all comes down to how quickly both VR and and AR, augmented reality, will become an essential part of our everyday lives. It took only about a decade for mobile phones, but for VR, it might take a bit more to step up from simple gaming and porn watching to something more serious. But if and when that happens, it's likely just a matter of time until we exchange the current reality for let's call it a new reality. I remember reading back in early 2018, about the first death caused by VR. A guy playing a VR game tripped, fell on a glass table, and unfortunately died of fatal injuries. So empiricism tells us that we can create an experience with our senses. So let's just take the unfortunate case a step further where VR can also stimulate your sense of touch instead of just vision and hearing. Theory, we might eventually cheat all five senses. So in some dystopian future, a person is forced to play that kind of VR. After long hours, all of his five senses being stimulated, he falls and receives an injury that isn't fatal. But depending on the reality of the VR and how deep it feels, how can he know what's the real experience and what's not? I mean, We've seen movies about this type of thing for years, but it does seem possible. So this takes us all the way back to the Allegory of the Cave and thinking about where's that thin line where VR becomes a reality for a person. And it's incredibly fascinating to think about. And augmented reality in a way is even crazier. You know, that's a bit like being on LSD at all times where, you know, all of a sudden a little creature just pops up on your your desk. So you're in the real world, but then it's augmented with these, you know, these things. And I've read about people who have tried some of these these new experiences coming out from Magic Leap and places, things like that, and even, and it sounds like you walk away from those experiences feeling like something literally just happened to you, not like it was a game or something. So if we get so immersed into virtual reality, it will become the main reality. Same as today's reality is much different than it was 20 years ago. 20 years ago, it was completely normal not to have a way to communicate with with people when you're out taking a walk, for example. Today, your friends will probably call 911 if you don't respond to a text within two minutes, or maybe they'll text 911. I'm sure some millennial has created a text-based 911 service by now. I mean, who wants to talk on the phone? So, of course, the phone example is silly and you know not that meaningful, but creating a completely new reality is an entirely different beast. So we can't but ask ourselves, Is what we're currently living in the reality, or just a reality? In other words, is what you see all around you, and even my words that you're currently hearing, just a matter of some sort of universal human subjectivity? So how we perceive the world evolves, and today, it changes faster than ever before. Are you saying that if we can't really know anything, that it means knowledge isn't important? Well, it really sucked to create this podcast if there wasn't knowledge that created the internet, microphone, laptop, messaging apps, and everything else I use to create all this. And how would I be able to create the episodes without some knowledge of philosophy, writing, recording, and so on? So the statement, how can we know anything, isn't here as a resolution that asks to give up on everything. In other words, knowledge is useless, so why bother. That's not what this question is getting at. There's a difference between simply consuming knowledge and actively processing knowledge. So we consume so much information today that it easily gets lost in its own volume. How much did you retain over the last week, for example, of all the junk that you read online? Obviously, it wasn't all junk, but all the emails, even just the emails you filter out and have to get rid of. You still have to process that in some manner. Then the things you actually did go out and read, either on social media or an article, how much of it did you fact check? Did you really have time to do that? Can you see any useful paths for using that information? Can you even remember what you read? If I think back, I probably can think of a couple things, but comparing that to the volume of things that I read, that's pretty sad. So it gets lost quickly, and we don't have time to actively process and make use of the knowledge. It's hard to understand how knowledge acquisition can happen if you're just consuming and not processing, and you almost have to do it in a strategic way these days. Is Ament based on someone? How about Dr. Hunter? No, these are both just characters born out of the need to serve the story and the topic. So Ament's name isn't accidental. It's a small play on words and some people might figure it out. But then again, there are some indirect connections between Dr. Hunter and and Canavero. Maybe Hunter as a version of Canavero, who has the knowledge but isn't motivated to actually do the operation. So it'd be interesting to ask Dr. Canavero if he'd do a head transplantation that didn't have, let's call them objective reasons, like helping someone. So it's unusual to have a doctor searching for a patient instead of the other way around, although it does happen in studies and research. So finally, how would the world react to a real ament? I could think of a couple scientists who appear to have a personality like his in my story the general audience is shocked somewhat disgusted but also intrigued but shock and drama gets clicks so why the question how can we know anything so a quote from the episode your senses should fuel your reason your reason should make you skeptical and this questioning should then inspire your drive for deeper sense experiences so i'd describe how can we know anything as a classic and important philosophical question that nobody gives a shit about. (laughs) Because really for most of us, what's the benefit of knowing how knowledge is acquired? It's not like answering this question will suddenly make you more knowledgeable. The problem we had is that we paired a deeply philosophical question with a really cool story and a controversial, important twist. So in order to have a meaningful conversation, we had to go deep into the philosophical rabbit hole that probably lost a good portion of the audience. What is probably the best conceptual episode of the season, in my opinion, it likely lost some of the audience because they just weren't interested in having to read through philosophy. So, But for people who are actively interested in philosophy, I've been told that the philosophical dialogue was solid and they and they found it intriguing. If there was an episode to go back and redo some parts, this would be the one because of the really good story and twist. There's 15 or 20 minutes in the middle that is just philosophical questions and debate that in a way might choke a great story for the non-philosophically interested. Overall, it's definitely been seen as, you know, the most intriguing episode, I think, regardless of that. But today I see this episode as a sort of testimony to our creative process for, for the podcast evolving. It's good to see how much we move forward since the episode came out. I spoke with a friend just just the other day who told me she really loved this episode and she's, you know, she's not into philosophy, but she wanted to discuss the twist with me. And so even though she isn't isn't into philosophy, she made it through the deep parts because she wanted to hear twist and she said she knew something was coming but she didn't know what it was so that's good but today i would i would rewrite this episode a little differently would or could we ever throw out one of the models of skepticism rationalism or empiricism a quote from the episode same as there's no way of finding out if eating dog or a cow is objectively wrong there's no way of knowing if everything we experience is actually reality any piece of knowledge that makes even a bit of sense of you, you should try it on for size and give it time to see if it fits anywhere in your life. But while doing it, you should also have a certain amount of skepticism. So it sounds contradictory because how can anyone be both open-minded and skeptical at the same time? On one hand, being open-minded means trying out different things. But on the other, skepticism limits your possibilities, right? The perfect place to start is on this exact issue. Try being open-minded to the possibility of skepticism and open-mindedness coexisting and give it a shot. Then after trying it out, we should use skepticism to check if it's the right thing for us. I know this sounds like chicken and egg, but really it's just critical thinking. If you shut down issues because, for example, they sound like pseudoscience before even investigating, then that's a brand of skepticism that might be you know, borderline dogmatic in its approach. You have to make claims that allow claims to be made. And the bigger the claim, the more evidence that's needed. So let that be your guide instead of blanket instinctive skepticism, which will just shut down everything interesting. So we'd have no progress in areas like quantum mechanics or consciousness research if we shut down things that just feel spooky. I mean, the fact that I'm even speaking this right now and you're listening to it is plenty spooky as it is. Or am I? Well, let's call it open-minded skepticism. But how can you know anything if you're not the one doing the experiments? Imagine trying to explain sex or LSD to a person who'd never experienced it. They'd never get it. So, the models explored in the episode, rationalism, empiricism, and skepticism, aren't here to provide answers. They exist to provide guidelines to clear thinking, and it's up to you to test them out and create your own opinion and thinking. It shouldn't be important if one of the three theories is more right than the other two, but what's important is to try to develop all three in yourself. If you want to be a rational, empirical, skeptical, open-minded, critical-thinking person. There's got to be a better way to say that. What did you mean by that Nietzsche quote? Whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process, he does not become a monster. The Nietzsche quote, although prominent, is primarily used to move the story forward. So for anyone who forgot, the scene is when Ament seems like he's losing the argument. In the middle of a live TV presentation, he suddenly stops and stands up and says this Nietzsche quote and then walks off the stage and leaves everyone wondering what in the hell just happened. I felt like I needed to add that, the final spice at the end of that, with the powerful sentence that gets locked into the listener's mind because it's a, it's a very stark moment in the flow of the episode. While we wanted drama, we argued, Antonio and I, on which quote to use. I had a different one in mind which I actually can't recall at the moment, but it was also a Nietzsche quote, I remember that. I guess when you need a dramatic exit from an intense decapitation debate, you look to the most somber and brilliant German philosopher you can imagine. So anyway, I wasn't sold on Antonio's pick, which is the one that we used eventually. I didn't think it fit. And I remember arguing with him on it, but his pick was better than mine. Mine was even less good. It was only later that I came to agree with him that it worked, and I liked that the monster reference kind of linked to the whole Dr. Frankenstein-ness of the situation. And Nietzsche's quote was also a perfect choice, as Ament is aware that he's being extreme, and he he plays it into the red herring that he himself has been planting this whole interview. Meaning his extreme perspective of being 100% certain that he's willing to do a head transplant for philosophical reasons. He's baiting Hunter and the entire audience watching to be distracted by this dramatic exit and seemingly his concession in the conversation so that he can then actually have the real conversation afterwards backstage which in that conversation, he then explains to Hunter, you know, why he did this big red herring because he wanted to grab Dr. Hunter emotionally and draw him into this situation because he knew that just hitting him with a rational reason would not make Hunter want to do the surgery. So in the case of Ament, the monster he thinks he'll be fighting is unscientific and irrational thinking. But when Hunter thinks what to decide at the end, he realizes that he might be seen as the monster, meaning Dr. Hunter. Whether Ament is successful in proving his theory or unsuccessful, one or the other side will demonize Dr. Hunter, and then he becomes the monster. So I think we kind of reasoned ourselves into this the choice of this quote, or at least I did. I'm happy with the choice, and it certainly served the purpose, as everyone who listened seems to remember that moment in the story and the specific quote. So I guess get ready to hear other Nietzsche zingers in future critical plot twist moments because it worked well here. What do the final lines of the episode mean? What happened? Quote from the very end of the episode, which is one of my favorite endings of, of the season. In the homes of millions of scientists, doctors, and intellectually curious people around the world, the collective response to the interview was, in a word, intrigue. If there was a single question asked in all those homes that evening, it was, should he do it? Dr. Hunter went to bed that night and failed to sleep, plagued by the exact same question. But he was even more troubled by the potential consequences whether he did the surgery or not. So even if Hunter doesn't agree to do the surgery, he knows that someone will potentially being referred to as the Darwin of the 21st century is just too enticing a proposition. So, and the fallout of that is huge. And it would mean Hunter would have missed the opportunity of a lifetime if the fear gets to him and he doesn't do it. So it's the perfect clash of personal and global progress. On the one hand, Hunter is plagued by the thought that he might not be the one to go down in history as the man who made this great discovery but he's also plagued by the fact that Ament is right. The consequences could be catastrophic, but no matter how you look at it, it's a step forward. Because the answer will come either way, and isn't it better sooner than later? Hunter would become the monster and the hero overnight, assuming the surgery completed and something happened. So the sooner we jump into the unknown, the sooner we'll get the crucial answers that humanity might not want, but needs. Intellectual progress is always good, at least in hindsight. And in the same way, the sooner we as individuals jump into our personal unknown, the better. Same as it doesn't matter if Canavero does it or not, someone will be the one who does a successful head transplant one of these days. And someone will make that mark in the evolving progress of humanity, for better or for worse. So this was why my marketing for this episode stressed the would you have the guts to change the world? Few of us will ever be in that position and even if we were I think most of us would punt. So it was really fun to put a character in that position two characters really but only Ament has decided that he has the guts and Hunter is not so sure. Now imagine if you had an important personal task you want to achieve but there are significant obstacles in your way. Naturally, it doesn't have to be a head transplant. It can be anything from getting your dream job to your dream partner. Because of the obstacles, you don't achieve the goal and then you die. So imagine a future where just before death, you're seated in front of a huge high-def screen that can play back all the most emotional of your memories for final processing. And you can see all those who followed through where you failed to even try. So how would you feel? My guess is you'd probably think you wish you'd had done it when you had the chance, you know, back when you're still alive. So let's take Dr. Hunter as the example here. So he knows this and the sheer idea that someone else will be the first just because he didn't do it is tearing him up. But on the other side, there's this hero monster reality to face if he takes on the challenge he's not insistent that this thing end up one way or the other like ament is if ament thought that it would not prove his perspective as true he wouldn't be doing it but hunter doesn't need that conviction he both wins and loses no matter which outcome occurs and that's the true test of the willingness to tackle the biggest issues that humanity faces how could you handle pissing off roughly half the world one way or the other in the pursuit of the truth. I mean this is why Darwin supposedly spent twenty years before fully publishing his ideas, because he knew this way. He was going to be seen, he was going to be seen as a villain on one side and a hero on the other. And to this day he still is. So what will he do? Ament prods Dr. Hunter when he says, You on the other hand, Dr. Hunter, will continue to swim in the unknown because based on this conversation so far, you're afraid to potentially turn on the light of true knowledge. Well, it doesn't matter what a fictional character such as Dr. Hunter will do, but it does matter what you or I will do because, you know, we're actually here. So South Park fans will know there's a superhero called Captain Hindsight who, in the funniest of ways, shows up whenever something terrible happens just in time to say what people should have done, you know, without actually helping as real superheroes do. But in this case, I think Captain Hindsight would tell Dr. Hunter after the fact that he was a fool to have passed up on this opportunity to possibly change our deeper understanding of the world. So although it's hard to say how we can actually know anything, one thing we do know is to try not to leave this life with too many large regretful hindsights in our rearview mirror. What does Dr. Hunter do? Will this be resolved later in the season? Oh, I've really learned how much people hate unresolved issues in these shows. They can't stand it. I get a lot of angry comments when things aren't fully wrapped up neat with a bow. And here I'm gonna pull my favorite trick and say, damn, it's a shame. We're out of time for this question. So this brings us to the end of the AMA, looking back at episode EF4, the evolve faster podcast i apologize to any questions left unanswered but this will have to cut it thank you for listening and next week we will start digging into episode ef5 with a behind the podcast first and then the following week another ask me anything so take care and thanks for listening and you can always submit questions at evolvefaster.com forward slash discuss take care the evolve faster podcast is written produced and performed by Scott Ely. Many episodes are also co-written with the help of Antonio Rosich. It takes an enormous effort to produce all the quality original content needed for this podcast. Your support would be greatly appreciated and you can learn about multiple ways to do so by going to evolvefaster.com forward slash subscribe. Here you'll find direct links to review and give the podcast five stars on key platforms like iTunes, and share it on social media. These are free to do, but are critical to audience growth. And the only way to find out about new seasons is to register your email, so please do so. You will only receive valuable content and information on upcoming seasons and products. And finally, if you're benefiting from the Evolve Faster podcast, direct financial support at whatever amount you can afford is important for our survival. Running ads on a channel for free thinking content is an inherent conflict of interest. So if you want the podcast content to remain unhindered by commercial interests and stay edgy and raw, then direct support is the best and only path to content independence. Also, writing and production of each episode of the Evolve Faster podcast is a major undertaking spanning many months. It's a labor of love, but it does need your help to survive. So please consider becoming a subscriber at evolvefaster.com forward slash subscribe. Your help and support are greatly appreciated and are what makes this podcast possible. Isn't it time for an upgrade? It's time to evolve faster.